You're listening to Power Athlete Radio, a podcast dedicated to empowering your performance every damn day. Join former NFL pro and Power Athlete founder John Wellborn as he dissects the greatest minds in strength, conditioning, and more. Joining him is everyone's favorite coach and hair model, Chris, a.k.a. Tex McQuilkin, Power Athlete's Director of Performance. So whether your goal is to be the hammer, destroy mediocrity, or simply move the dirt, you've come to the right place. Now with the warm-up done, let the games begin. This episode is part of our Move the Dirt series, designed to empower you with the tools to move towards your goals. Move the Dirt is something we say a lot here at Power Athlete. The dirt is the dirt. It's that lazy, fearful, bitch-mode voice in your head that says, too tired, too busy, too old, too injured, too whatever... You can't reason with it, but you can move it. Some days you get a big-ass shovel in your hands and it's easy. You're strong, you're motivated, you're king of the world. But some days you get a spoon. And you still got to show up and move that shit anyway, rep by rep, spoon by spoon. So long as you're moving a little dirt every day, you're digging in the right direction. If you're sick of the dirt dominating you and you want to be master of your own self, walk the power athlete path with us. Visit PowerAthleteHQ.com forward slash training and start moving the dirt today. Hey, welcome to another episode of Power Athlete Radio. How do I sound? You sound smooth. Ooh, like the voice of an angel? Like rich Corinthian leather. <laughs> That's what happens to you. It's deep voice like Barry White. Mm-hmm. They call that the baby making Let's music. get it on. Nice. Well, hey, Doc, thanks for coming to Power Athlete Radio. It's always great to have you here in the studio in the podcast room. As our expert and go-to for pretty much anything that looks like health or sleep or performance. Thanks for having me, man. It's always cool. a pleasure to be here. Today we're focusing all about sleep. So new year, new resolutions. A lot of people are focusing on fitness, movement, but they're neglecting some low-hanging fruit. And probably the easiest thing for them to adjust, go to bed earlier. Do you think sleep is something that people factor into their resolution? Like, hey, new me, new you. The new year, this is one of the things I'm going to change. Like how, how According far to my sleep? Instagram feed, no. <laughs> well, the problem is your Instagram feed is just usually what? Like amazing cuts of meat and chicks with great butts. So that I've seen That swing golf clubs. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. But no, but pun intended, no, nobody's talking about sleep. Here's the data. 80% of nutrition resolutions fail after just one month. What we help make happen is you moving the dirt past February 1st. So here's the deal. If you want to tack the year with purpose, stay the course and hit your goals, you need Power Athlete programming. It's been battle-tested at the highest level and gets results for every level of athlete. As a special offer this January, if you commit to the cause for a year, you get the full Power Athlete experience for less than a dollar a day with an extra 200 bucks of content for free, a one-on-one consultation to help you set your goals, and a nutrition protocol of your choice. Visit PowerAthleteHQ.com forward slash training and start moving the dirt today. Why is that, Doc? I mean, I know that's kind of an open-ended question. Yeah, I mean, I feel like... Nothing I can support. Well, take us back. What were your origins with sleep? What threw you in to realize, hey, there's so much value here and low-hanging fruit with the seals that you were working with? Well, so when when I went to the SEAL teams as their physician... I was, I was really well steeped in sports medicine, which I figured, you know, sports medicine, ortho, I was planning on being an orthopedic, sur- an orthopedic surgeon. 
and I did sports medicine the whole time I was in college. When I when I got to there, when, when I got there, I, I I helped build out this new sports medicine facility, first thing we'd ever had, and we hired like all these great trainers and strength and conditioning coaches, nutrition, and all this stuff. Um, and then. You know, we had orthos around coming through. We had sports medicine coming through. We had pain coming through. So then I was the dumbest guy around. So in the military, when you're the dumbest guy around, they put you in charge. And said, so now you supervise all these people who know more than you. I'm like, okay, great. Um, so that was really my job. Is I, was, I became a supervisor instead of a doctor. <laughs> and then, but the guys would come to my office. They'd close the door and be like, hey, let me tell you what's going on. Because ordinarily, they just lie to their doctor and say everything's great. Because they're just like an athlete. The worst thing you can do is put them on the bench. So... Sure. The doctor's the guy who can put it on the bench, so they're not going to tell you anything. Um, and they'd come in my office and they'd say, like, you know, my mood sucks, my motivation sucks, my body composition shifting, I'm doing everything right, I'm following the nutrition advice, I'm following the strength and conditioning cut, I'm getting weaker, I'm getting fatter, I'm getting dumber, I'm getting slower, my sex drive's down, my sexual performance is down, my memory sucks, I can't concentrate. But they didn't have any disease. I was a Western trained medical physician. I knew how to treat diseases, diagnose and treat diseases. They didn't have any diseases. So I was like, I don't have the slightest idea. So why don't we test everything I can possibly think to test? So I started doing these huge lab panels. <clears throat> First thing I got in a lot of trouble for, um, cause I think it was, I think they said they were like 1500 or $2,000 per, cause I was having a hundred different lab values pulled. For, for SEALs that they've already invested millions of dollars right, into training. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but after you've done like three or 400 of those, they're kind of pissed about it. Um, and I didn't really know what I was looking for. I was just looking to see if I could find a pattern. And all of their anabolic markers were super low. All of their catabolic markers were really high. Their inflammation was high. Oxidation was high. And I was just like, I don't know. Um, this was nine, eight years into the war uh post 9 11 so it's 2009 so i'm like well you know in world war ii and in vietnam we had like shell shock and combat fatigue and all this like maybe it's maybe this is that like but not knowing what that is um so i started reading some sort of alternative non-mainstream stuff and uh i thought well maybe it's adrenal fatigue so uh, i started treating for adrenal fatigue got in trouble for that too apparently uh Doctors can't give IV vitamins. That's beyond my scope of practice. Um, so they just really kind of cracked down on everything I was doing. Who who could do that if a doctor couldn't? I don't know. Who who would be above you in terms of the idea of, of standard of care? I, I don't know. <laughs> but like I'm given a very narrow scope of what I'm allowed to do uh, when I when I when I'm in the Navy. So um, somewhere along the, lo- the line of you know, once one guy came in, you know, it's a very word of mouth community and sure. because I'd been a team guy before they trusted me. And so word spread quickly and all these guys came to my office and literally told me such a similar story that I thought they were briefing each other on what to say. Um, but it was exactly the same thing came out of everybody's mouth. And, you know, later than I'd like to admit into it, maybe 50 or 60 guys into it, uh, he said, the guy I'm talking to said something about taking Ambien every night. And I was like, hmm, I make a note in my margins. Like, it seems like a lot of guys have said that. So then I go through their shadow files after he leaves. Every single guy who's been in my office takes Ambien. I'm like, huh, I wonder, like, so I'd been to medical school. 
I didn't get a single class on sleep. I did pharmacology, so I knew that Am Ambien was a GABA analog. I don't really know what that meant. I mean, I know it acts like, that means it acts like GABA, but I don't really know anything about sleep because I've never been taught anything about sleep. So Or nutrition. Or nutrition. Yeah. Or exercise. Or exercise. Um, so I'm like, okay, well, let me see what I can learn about sleep. So then I start studying what actually happens while you're asleep. And after, and, and the, the other thing is I was in this great position because the SEALs already had sort of this quasi-celebrity status. And I, so I could watch people's TED Talks or read their book or see them lecture or whatever and just call them and be like, hey, I'm the doctor for the West Coast SEAL teams in the morning. If I could come train with you or consult with you, everybody was overjoyed to do it. Um, so I got to learn a lot really quickly. And... Um, I start learning what actually happens while you're asleep, and I'm like, oh, shit, this could actually explain every single symptom that these guys are complaining of. Now, I didn't, I wasn't naive enough to think that it would explain every single symptom, but I thought, let's see how big of this effect is. So, um, you know, if you know the SEAL community. If one's good, two's better, three's great. Sure. So they're taking three times the recommended doses of Ambien, and then they're taking usually doing that with alcohol. So a couple of cocktails or sure. three or four beers. And, um, which well, is really how you get the ambient to really, <laughs> that's when it really works. Um, uh, I do have a funny story about ambient that we'll come back to. So ambient destroys REM sleep and about 80% of REM sleep. And then what we call slow wave sleep or deep sleep, it'll reduce by about 20%. So alcohol is exactly the opposite. So when you take those two together, you don't get any sleep. You go unconscious for however long you're unconscious. But when I do sleep studies on these guys, they come back 99.9% .9 stage two sleep, which is just transitional sleep. So none of the benefits of deep sleep, none of the benefits of REM sleep, which begs the question, how are they even alive? I don't know. Like, you know, there has to be more to it. There has to be some sort of uh, compensatory me mechanism that's keeping them as healthy as they are. Um, and so, I was like, well, let's get them off of Ambien and alcohol. <laughs> and so um, because they couldn't sleep, I couldn't just say, well, start sleeping and don't use your drugs. Yeah. Um, so I had to come up with something. So we came up with a combination of supplements and adjusted it over time by just having guys experiment with it. Um, and it was about seven different supplements, but they had to go buy it all piecemeal at different, this is pre-Amazon days, so they had to go out and buy it all at different uh, supplement stores or whatever GNCs and things like that uh, around San Diego and eventually they harangued me into making a product and that's why that exists um, but um, once I got them off of the sleep drugs and every single guy who wanted to get off got off um, and once I got off of, off of the sleep drug and had them quit drinking so much alcohol not only were they able to sleep but their total testosterone tripled, their free testosterone quadrupled, wow. their oxidation went down, their inflammation went down. And I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. So you think it was just the alcohol, right? Yeah, so that was a component, but now was over time they've sort of rewired their brain. Sure. And so then I started supplementing them with, you know, like DHEA and pregnenolone and putting an aromatase inhibitor, whether that was zinc citrate or Remedex or something like that. Uh, to drive their testosterone production pathway more, I, you know, they wouldn't have let me give the guys testosterone because that's yeah. Why would you have done that? That's forbidden in the teams, I sure. guess. But you can give them Ambien. You can give them all the weird shit. Yeah, Ambien was completely safe in their mind. It was like taking a multivitamin. 
So, uh, so one of the guys I played with um, well, had terrible. Quick ter question: Does it need to be a prescription? Yeah. I don't know anything. Yeah, okay. it, it yeah. is a prescription. Yeah. So one of the guys I played with had terrible ADHD, and he used to take like I mean, like I want to say like eighty to one hundred milligrams of uh, Adderall a day. Mm -hmm. Like he used to take like five twenties, which, like for anybody that's like uh, would ever take it, like that'll fucking fry your nerves. Yeah. And uh, that was how he just like functioned. He was such a high functioning uh, ADHD guy. Um, the only problem is, is when you take that much, you can't sleep. So he used to take Ambien to be able to go to sleep. And I remember we were on the road and all of a sudden he came over and banged on my door and uh, told me that there was a, like a fucking dwarf or a troll in his room. Mm. And I like went over there and we were like looking for it. And I was like, well, it's fine if it's here. And he's like, it's underneath the bed. It popped up. I saw it. And then I, re <laughs> I realized like he would fucking hallucinate. He would take the Ambien and kind of like fight it off a little bit and see weird shit. And I remember being like, I don't know if this is such a good idea. And then when I met Doc and he was telling me about like, you know, how like Ambien does, I was like, well, this dude I know used to see like weird trolls and like monsters in his room, you know, at night from it. So, yeah. So unfortunately when drugs get approved, um, obviously it goes through that very stringent organization, the FDA and, um, but the, but the pharmaceutical industry not only pays to do the research, they own the research and they don't have to give the FDA everything. They give the FDA what they want to give the FDA. Oh, that makes sense. Unless they get sued. And once they get sued, then they have to pull up the skirt and show like all the research. And then it always turns out that they knew. Yeah. Right. And that's what, that's what happened with the opiates. That's what happened with, uh, Vioxx. Vioxx. Yeah. And all this stuff. So this had started happening with Ambien because what Ambien does is it doesn't put you to sleep at all. It dissociates your neocortex, which is like the big wrinkly part of your brain that you think of when you think of a human brain. And then there's, uh, there's like, you know, the lizard brain, the midbrain and the brain stem that kind of, that, that kind of sits on top of. So this, this part's keeping you alive, right? Like the brain stem and midbrain, like that's doing your heart rate and your breathing and all that stuff. Um, but the neocortex is how we interact with the world. So that's our motor cortex and it's all of our sensory. So it's processing our visual or auditory or olfactory, like everything is being processed through that part. And then we're interacting, moving with the motor cortices in there. So um, all that, all Amian does is dissociate those two. Wow. So you can be completely wide awake to everybody around you's perception and have no conscious awareness of what you're actually doing or what's going on. So people were, and when the lizard brain's in charge, you feed, fornicate, fight, yeah, like you do these primal things. And so people were taking Ambien, uh, going unconscious, maybe not perceptible to anybody else, and then getting in their cars and driving. Holy smokes. Driving to the casinos, yeah. gambling away their life savings, getting a reverse mortgage on their house or something, you know, like, you know, just literally devastating themselves, going home, going back to bed, waking up the next day and not remembering any of it. It's like fight club. Um, yeah. So uh, recently we got reached out to by a guy uh, kind of through the channels and he asked me if I knew anything about um, feast or famine, like nighttime eating. Yeah. And he was saying that he wasn't hungry all day and that at night would have like this, uh, like sleepwalking eating deal and was having this feast or famine issues. And I looked it up, and it's uh, it's obviously an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. um, it's, you know, it's a, it's a clinical in that it's not a nutrition issue. It's a you know, it's a form of depression, but also uh, you know, being a psychological issue. But then, oddly enough, Ambien. 
Yeah, I saw Ambien attached to that. And then when the guy was like, ah, oh, you know, I'm dealing with TBIs and ADHD, my first question was like, knowing that, and the reason I brought up that player that I played with, are you too much Ridlin or, you know, are you taking OX? Are you taking Ambien? Like, yeah. it's kind of a, and that's what they do when they prescribe you, you know, Ridlin or uh, Adderall. They're like, oh, are you having trouble sleeping? Here's the Ambien. So they kind of go hand in hand. So when that guy put that in there, I was like, oh, the Ambien. Yeah. So actually, before I knew any of this, um, you know, I coached, I coached, uh, my son's football team for a lot of seasons and one of the one of the uh women who had you know sons that's coaching was a nurse and i and i was just chatting with her one day and she told me the story that she just thought was funny um that she um you know her, her kids were at their father's house and she goes to bed wakes up the next day and goes downstairs and her house is totally ransacked and she's like Shit. So she runs back upstairs and she calls 911 and locks herself in the bedroom or bathroom or whatever. And then the cops show up and they clear the whole house. <clears throat> it was her. She had gotten up in the middle of the night. She'd gone and eaten like all the kids' junk food and like cooked a bunch of ramen, like did like and just did did weird stuff, disheveling the house. Um, and you know, after, it took her a while, but she figured out, oh, that was actually me that <laughs> did all that. Um and I was like, wow, that's a powerful story. And then um, my wife at the time took Ambien, which she did that before I met her. So I didn't, I didn't know anything about it. Or I mean, I didn't, I didn't have an opinion about it. Um, and she and I had about an hour and a half conversation one night about whether or not we were going to go to her friend's destination wedding in Bali or something like that. And then the next day I brought something up about it. And she's like, what are you talking about? I was like, our conversation last night. She's like, what conversation? Like we sat right here and we talked about going to their wedding for like an hour and a half. And we talked about all the logistics and the, and she's like, I don't remember that at all, but it's completely normal. I mean, this is somebody I live with. I know her inside out, like totally normal. I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't pick up on anything different about her. So once they got sued and all that came out and then of course they dumped all their data and it proved that they already knew that, uh, Ambien doesn't even actually improve sleep at all um like i said it makes you unconscious so it decreases the quality of your sleep which is just as important as the quantity of your sleep and it only makes i want to say it makes you fall asleep on average 13 minutes faster and you'll be asleep for 37 minutes longer but it's reducing about 60 to 70 percent of the quality of your sleep so you're going backwards right um and so anyway it was pretty clear to me that well let me get you know, let me let me get this Ambien off these guys, get them to quit drinking so much. And do people feel better from taking Ambien? Like no, like most most people will will say that it's. Uh, I mean, it, just what you would think of a dissociation, right? So anything that's dissociative. Um, so it's it's probably like microdosing psychedelics or something right because they're like they're like slightly dissociated they feel slightly different the next day like the whole rest of the day they just don't feel quite themselves which but they've convinced they themselves yeah. um psychologically well it must be because i got better sleep right yeah. and so i i actually had one of the guys i did a sleep study on uh one of the seals he had he had really really bad insomnia um he had intractable intractable insomnia so bad that he was he hadn't slept for four or five days and he was out in training and he was, he was hallucinating during live fire events. I'm like, oh. well, that's not safe. So yeah, send, no, him, send him back to see the doc. And so I, I start working with them. 
Uh, and we did a sleep study on him and they have cameras in the room. And so they put all the gear on him and he laid down and then a little while later he sat up and he started reading a book and then he started screwing around on his phone and he did this for like five hours and then he laid back down, closed his eyes, slept for about an hour and woke up and looked at his watch and thought he slept for seven or eight hours. Wow. And he's like, well, here's this video of you, <laughs> like not being asleep at all and walking around the room and doing stuff. Yeah. So it, it, it's not a good drug and now it's out of favor. At that time, it was the most prescribed drug in America. Yeah. Um, now Abilify, which is an antipsychotic, now they're, giving, now they're giving that for sleep and depression. And now that's the most prescribed drug in the world, like billions of dollars worth of that drug every year. So your sleep remedy um, that I know you created uh, to kind of combat some of this stuff, I gave it to all of our fighters. I gave it to Arash, I gave it to Victor and uh, the guys. And uh, they basically are convinced that whatever it is, uh, knocks them off their feet. Like they have to take it in bed or they're pretty much not going to. Yeah. Like I, and I, they, they were like, um, so, you know, I'd extra, I was like, Hey, let me, let me know what you guys think of it. And they came in and they're like, Oh my God, I took one of those things. And I like, uh, like, I'm glad I was laying down when it happened. And then I told them I'd take two and they were like heads exploded. Yeah. And I'm like, uh, I'll be all right. But I mean, it works really well for those dudes. They love it. They think yeah. it's great. And they hit me up as soon as they're out. They're like, Hey, can I get more? Well, and the interesting thing about it is there's no trick. In, there's no trick to that, right? All pharmaceuticals are a trick, right? So, like, we know that, um, you know, when the sun goes down, of course, that the blue light goes out of your eyes and that triggers eventually some melatonin to be released. That's like the initiation of a bunch of changes in your brain. But one of the biggest changes is the increase of this neuropeptide called GABA, gamma amino butyric acid, if anybody cares. Um, and what that does is it slows down the neocortex, right? So when we're the only the only really good definition of being asleep is a lack of being awake because there's no process to put you to sleep. There's just taking away the wake promoting activities. Well, what um, so your brain is much more active at sleep than it is during the wake. It's, so like it's active in different ways. right? So what's the process? Is it kind of like rebooting your computer? I mean, what is the function of sleep? No. Is it, this always amazed me, right? Like, think about, like, humans in an evolutionary, in, like, an evolutionary place, right? Like, think about, like, we go into a comatose state where we're indefensible, mm-hmm. right? Like, like we Very vulnerable. Yeah, super yep. vulnerable. Yep. So, like, you're going to have to find some place where you're safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's dark out, so, I mean, most predators and things that want to eat us are usually hunting at night. But yep. at night, we get tired, and we get into this, like, comatose, uh, you know, vulnerable state where we're... This, I mean, it must have an evolutionary reason, right? Because if not, we would have just been killed off repeatedly, right? And and something that I say a lot, and anybody who's you know heavily steeped in logic will point out the flaws in it. And I understand this felonious logic, but it is still somewhat logical to think if we could have evolved to sleep less, right? If certain genetic patterns led to sleeping four hours a night instead of eight hours a night. Those people should have out-survived the eight-hour-a-night people, and they sh- it should have been preferential, That yeah. right? But everybody still needs eight hours. So it's, it's like a contract you're bought into. Like, you don't, you don't have an option. It's like, you know, when you're born, a couple of guarantees. One, we know you're going to die. And then two, you know, once you become an adult, it takes about eight hours to recover from being awake 16 hours. So the whole point of going to sleep, like right now, all of us are more catabolic than we are anabolic, 
because we're awake and we're using resources to do what we're doing. Um, we aren't putting those resources back in. Like the, a lot of those resources are stored intracellularly and every cell in our body is doing work and producing waste and using up resources and just catabolic. We're breaking ourselves down. Uh, and then the waste product builds up in the brain a lot because there's not a lot of circulation in the brain. So the cerebral spinal fluid is kind of what flushes that out and that doesn't really happen until you're asleep. So when you're awake for 16 hours, you're essentially uh, consuming resources. And then if you work out, say, well, if I work out, I actually get weaker, right? I damage my muscles. Once I go to sleep, if I repair them, I will repair them with today being the template. So like if I tried to bench 300 pounds and I can't bench 300 pounds or I can barely bench 300 pounds and I do that a couple of times, well, my muscles are going to grow back in a way that makes it easier for me to bench that much weight next time so that I don't damage myself. And sure. it's, so it's like, a, it's really part of your immune system and it's, it's a way to defend against the environment killing you, which is what your immune system does. And so you're trying to get stronger. And if I run or whatever, if I'm doing cardio, then my muscles will become more enduring. But that happens when I'm asleep. That's the anabolic period. The most anabolic period of your life is deep sleep. That's when your anabolic hormones are produced. That's when they're maximized. And that's when your stress hormones, which are all catabolic, are the lowest. And so when I go to, when I, when I, stay up for 16 hours, I'm consuming all these resources and I'm damaging myself and I'm building up waste products and all of that needs to be fixed. So what the whole point of me going to sleep tonight is to repair from today and to prepare for tomorrow. And that takes eight hours. You don't get a choice in that. The other interesting thing people don't think about is that if I could completely repair and I could completely prepare, the next morning I would wake up exactly the same as the day before. And I would never age, right? I would just, if it was 100% recovery, I would just be exactly the same every day. We obviously don't repair 100%. It's high 99.9 something, right? So what you're saying is that if we, and let's say you were in your 30s, 40s, or 50s, could sleep like my kids, we would age. Because as we age, we have, we'd lose the ability to sleep. Like, I, I'm pretty sure the other day, um, my kids slept till noon, and I went and checked on them to make sure they were breathing. Right. And they didn't move. Like, they weren't screwing around on their phones. They went to bed, like, maybe at, like, 9 or 10. They went to bed a little late. Right. It was noon, and I was like, my, my dad would have fucking freaked out and kicked in the door and called us lazy and screamed at us. Right. But I'm more, like, amazed that they can sleep this long. I went and checked on them, and I'm like, no, they're still breathing. And they didn't fucking move. Well, obviously, childhood is way more anabolic than... But like adulthood, right? How so do that's we bottle the that. So little kids actually, you know, in contrast to us, they're actually repairing and preparing more. So yeah. they're they're waking up at a hundred hundred point zero zero one percent better. And yeah, they're waking up taller and stronger and faster and smarter. Um, and we're and like somewhere around twenty five is the watershed point where it starts kind of it plateaus for about twenty, you know, from about twenty five to maybe early 30s, mid 30s max, and then it starts going downhill. And that's when you really, that's when you really start noticing people aging. Um, and then the older you get, the faster it goes, right? Yeah. And of course, one of the best things you can do is honestly stay healthy and maintain your muscle mass and nutrition yeah. and all that stuff, because you have more resources, <laughs> right? Um, and so the, if sleeping eight hours is the best I can do, which is like we said, sort of evolutionarily idealized um, over millions of years. If I choose to sleep six hours instead of eight hours, and humans are the only animal on the planet that will 
deliberately sleep deprive themselves. The other animals do it when they're being preyed upon or when they're starving. So it makes sense that evolutionarily our brains are wired that way too. So if we're sleep depriving ourselves, our brains probably think we're being, we're under threat sure. or we're starving, which is why it changes appetite regulation and all that. Um, we can get into that. But if I choose to sleep six hours instead of eight hours, I've just now, I've just cut myself 25% of recovery. I'm, I'm not repairing 25% as much and I'm not preparing 25% of it. So it's a compounding interest. Now, if I wake up tomorrow, you know, tomorrow still comes, whether I sleep six hours or eight, it still comes and the day still has all the same demands. So how would I get through that? Sleep 10 hours the next day? No. <laughs> so I always kind of hoped that there was sleep bank. the sleep bank. So yeah. I had a theory that uh, if I underslept, if I just slept extra um, towards the, the end of the week. There's some validity to that. I always thought that there was a sleep bank. Like it was kind of like the law of averages over a week. It was kind of like calories. Like if I under ate today, over eight. Uh... So if, if I sleep six hours, I've cut off 25% of my, the value of my sleep, but tomorrow still comes. So how do I get through the day? Well, I release more stress hormones. Cortisol gets a bad rap, like it's the stress hormone, but, and it is the stress hormone, but technically what stress hormones do is they keep you alert in proportion to your environment. So right now our stress hormones aren't high because we're sitting around a comfortable environment. If a truck crashed into the building, our stress hormones would go really high, right? Um, so yeah, what's DJ doing up there? <laughs> So you never really know what's <laughs> going to happen. Um, so stress hormones are catabolic. So now not only am I consuming resources and sort of damaging myself through the day, I've accelerated that by 25%. And if I do that every day, well, then you're fucked. I'm fucked. Yeah. And, and then the, you know, another thing to factor into that is your, you know, your cortisol has a peak at somewhere around one to 3 PM, um, which is, Coincidentally, we're like, I don't know, something like 85% of all world's records are set between, you know, that time, like when, when they're at their physiologic peak of cortisol. Um, so they, they peak at a certain point of the day and then they start coming back down. If you, if you slept and there was no light and no noise, and the temperature was constant, you would still sleep. I mean, if you're well sleep adapted, uh, so if you slept, say eight hours on a regular basis and your circadian rhythms are well aligned and I put you in a cold, dark room, with no stimulus whatsoever, you would still wake up about eight hours later. There wouldn't be any sun waking you up. There wouldn't be any noise. You would just wake up. What wakes you up is your cortisol levels. So your cortisol levels gradually go down through the day. At a certain point, they're low enough for you to fall asleep. And then the lowest stress hormones you will ever have is when you're in deep sleep. So the, and the most deep sleep you get is the first sleep cycle. So the first two to four hours of your sleep, the most anabolic time in your life, but also the, le the least catabolic. You have almost no stress hormones. And then they start going back up and your body temperature starts going back up and your cortisol levels start going back up. And then at some point, your cortisol stress hormones includes epinephrine, norepinephrine. Those come up high enough to the point where it wakes you up. If you're running 50% higher than you should be, your stress hormones never go low enough to go to sleep. And they wake you up a lot earlier because those are sort of set points. Once, once there's this much stress hormones, you're going to wake up. So those, those are the people that have a really difficult time falling asleep, difficult time staying asleep, people who drug themselves to sleep, people who need alcohol, because what's alcohol doing? It, um, it doesn't decrease your awareness of your problems, but it decreases how much you care about your problems, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so you, 
so you go, well, I'm not quite as stressed as I was. My stress hormones go down. I can fall asleep. That's why alcohol sleep, helps you sleep. It's not because it says, yeah, but present. I don't know anybody that's had a bunch of drinks and actually thought to themselves. No, no, no. Like the amazing. quality of your sleep is worse. It's, it's dog shit. But if your stress hormones are 50% higher than they should be, you're probably not going to fall asleep without something. I mean, maybe you're going to fall asleep at two o'clock in the morning or three o'clock in the morning. Um, so, Doc, personally, I never have a problem falling asleep, even when I'm super stressed. It's actually like the 3 a.m. wake up is what gets me. Yeah. Like if I'm super stressed, I fall right to sleep. Well, and then I get this like 3 a.m. like on the bows. Well, I'll get this like feeling in my chest that something's wrong, like a panic, and I'll wake up and that's it. So yeah. what are the, the phases of sleep? And then to lead to John's question, like what point is he waking up? What phase is he waking up at 3 a.m.? Okay, so... There's a couple of different factors. So uh, cortisol, we talked about circadian rhythm. So a lot of people think that circadian rhythm is just the light in your eyes and the timing of your brain with sleep. That's part of it. But every single cell in your body has a circadian rhythm and they're all matched, which is why shift work um, kills people. Essentially, people die 12 to 14 years younger if they do shift work. Uh, because dude, we get questions all the time with people with shift working that are trying to do it. And uh, before I used to be like, avoid it because you're going to die early. Right. Now I'd just be like, uh, do what you can, live the best life, see ya. I mean, all you can do is mitigate. Yeah. You can mitigate the damage, but you can't avoid the damage. Um, so when you when you first go to sleep, well, to finish that thought, every, every cell in your body is awake when you should be awake. It's, and they do different things. Your cells do different things. Like your liver does different things at night than it does during... Or, and so... These cells are doing different things during the day than they are during the night. So if you're awake at night, it doesn't change the circadian rhythm of my liver or my, or my spleen or my heart or anything else, right? So, um, so that mismatch is probably what's causing people to die young um, or get cancer. So uh, anyway, when you first go to sleep at night, um, there's two things. There's the circadian rhythm. There's the light in your eyes. The your, Well, this sounds like more than one thing. But one thing I will consider is just sort of sleep hygiene, which is all you have to do is think back. 500 years ago, what would have somebody done, right? So the light would have gone out of their eyes. There was no heater, so they would get colder. The body temperature would go down. They couldn't see anything. They couldn't do anything. They weren't going to go run around and climb mountains and whatever. So they were less stimulated. So lack of stimulation, lack of blue light and lower body temperature, that's kind of sleep hygiene. All, all the tricks and gadgets are around that. Now there's something else called sleep pressure. And sleep pressure is a physiologic but also cognitive drive to sleep. So when you're, when you're super sleep deprived and you think like I could lay down on this concrete floor right here and go to sleep, yeah, that's, that's, every, that's- Every day of my life. That's sleep pressure. What causes sleep pressure? I thought they it, call that parenthood. <laughs> yes. Uh, yep. Parent, parents lose about 25% of their sleep the first two years of their kid's life. Yep. Um, so when you're smart like me and you have a kid every two years for six years, and then you're, yeah. Uh, <coughs> well, what about twins? It's 50% then. Yeah, the maybe. Yeah. Could be. It's probably, it's definitely more yeah. twins, I'd guess, but I've been, I don't know the research on it. But, um, yeah, so, when you, uh, when you, so every cell in your body uses adenosine triphosphate, ATP, right? And that's just an adenosine molecule with three phosphate groups. And every time you pull off a phosphate group, that releases energy. And that energy is what the cell uses to do what that cell does. 
Um, and what that cell does is dictated by the hormones and, you know, the epigenetics of that cell. And, and so when you break down ATP to ADP, which is diphosphate, and then AMP, which is monophosphate, and then it's just A, and that's adenosine, that builds up in your brain and it has receptors in your brain that says, we have way too much adenosine. We've consumed way too much energy. We need to restore. And so you'll feel like falling asleep, regardless of how high your cortisol levels are, regardless of how much stress you're under, regardless of how much light is around you, stimulation, you can just go to sleep because you have enough adenosine just saturating your brain. Your brain's like, gotta shut down, man. It's overheating, like we're, we're going down. Now, when you first go to sleep, uh, you know, stage, stage one sleep is like when you lay in your bed and you, and you're, uh, you can still hear stuff and you're still aware of stuff, but it's a little different. It's almost a little dream state and you're kind of like, uh, you're not really processing it the same way. And you know that stage two is actual sleep. Um, there's some elect, yeah, there's, there's some like EEG things that fire and these spindle things and it's not important, but, um, you go from stage two, then you go down to stage three and four, which is deep sleep. Um, and deep sleep, again, that's when your your stress hormones go down to a minimum. Your anabolic hormones are all produced, and that's when your repair starts. And so you start fighting off infection, parasitic and parasitic infection, bacterial infections, viral infections. Your immune system's ramped up. You're also repairing your damaged tissue, and then uh, the cells in your in your brain that kind of maintain the structure of the brain they they shrink down by about thirty percent, and they create this pathway for their cerebral spinal fluid to go through and flush out all the waste products. And then you start replenishing uh, resources. So glycogen stores or you know amino acids that the cells need, neurotransmitters, you start rebuilding that during this anabolic period. And you go through deep sleep. Every sleep cycle is 90 to 120 minutes long. So the first sleep cycle is going to be about 80%, maybe 90% deep sleep. And then about 10% REM sleep. And REM sleep is named after the rapid eye mo movement. That's when you're, that's when you're learning and emotionally categorizing. So when you're in REM sleep, you're literally rehearsing everything you've learned during that day. You're thinking about everything you've ever done. That's what dreams are. Yeah, yeah. So you're just processing things and it's not a, obviously in a linear fashion that's obvious, but you're processing things. And what you're doing is you're connecting data points and your brain's deciding if it's useful or not. And if it's, and the, your neurons have these little buds that you can think of just like a tree budding in the spring, just like these little buds that start growing off of them. And if your brain thinks it's useless, it just shaves them all off. And if it thinks that, if it thinks that it's useful, then it makes that pathway more durable and it connects it to more things. So once you go to sleep, once you sleep well, you can connect anything that you learned, anything you've heard, anything you've seen, anything you've practiced, anything you've experienced, you can connect that to other pieces of information. Once you connect it to a lot of different points of information with durable, pathway, durable pathways, now you actually know it, right? You can think about it from different angles than you learned about it. Mm -hmm. um, and you can use that information. So now you've learned. You also emotionally categorize things. So if you've had a fight with your spouse about dirty dishes in the sink, well, that's a stupid argument. There should be no emotional response to that at all, right? Like as soon as you're done with that conversation, you should be done with that. But if you don't sleep well, you maybe don't put that in the right file, right? And so now it's like a real trigger. And then the next time there's something about that, well, and you're really going after each other. And we think this is a big part of PTSD mm -hmm. because people tend to not sleep well after trauma, especially if they've had head trauma because that interferes with your hormones and 
all of these recovery repair stuff I'm talking about. That's a myth. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and NFL player, <laughs> and they don't. And when they don't sleep well, they don't emo- they don't emotionally categorize well, and so now something that they might have been able to deal with emotionally and cognitively is a lot harder for them to deal with because they're not getting quality sleep. So what's happening with you? And the reason, so men when they, when men have insomnia, they can usually fall asleep fine. Then they wake up after their first sleep cycle, maybe after their first two sleep cycles. And what's happening, like I said, the stress hormones are too high to, for them to go to sleep, but they have enough adenosine to cause enough sleep pressure. They go down there, they, they go down into deep sleep. When they do that, their brain flushes out a lot of the adenosine and it decreases the sleep pressure. And now once they come up through a lighter level of sleep, they have enough stress hormones to wake up. And so they wake up in the middle of the night. Women tend to have a hard time falling asleep. Sure. Immediately, like initially. Yep. Women have roughly the same size brains as we do. I mean, it's, there's not a huge disparity. That's between, not what Ron Burgundy said. <laughs> there, there's not a huge disparity in the size of our brains, but there's a huge disparity in muscle mass. So who's producing more adenosine? Like yeah. we have way more adenosine. We, uh, we're just, you know, physiologically bigger. And so we're consuming more ATP and we're producing more adenosine. And so we have more sleep pressure than women. Yeah, no, my, my wife hates it. And the fact that I put my head down on the pillow and yeah. instantly to sleep to the point where she probably just stares at me and it's like, I'm going to fucking stab this dude. When, and, <laughs> and actually, if you, if you fall asleep in less than, say, probably six or seven minutes, that's a really good sign that you're sleep deprived. Mm. Wow. Yeah. I just thought that was normal. Yeah. So it's called sleep latency. Um, now, it... It's, it's more something you do while you're awake. But so what we need to do is create a, calling it like a symposium, a camp, where we just get to go away and just sleep. Well, like see, that's, that's actually how all this research was found. So this started with something. Uh, so William Dement is like the godfather of sleep medicine in America. And it's not a very old field. It's only like 60 years old. 60 but we've been sleeping for millions of years. Yeah. But it's, yeah. And so... Uh, he, I don't think he was the primary researcher, but he was involved with the research that defined rapid eye movement. Mm. And that was just an observation, like most things in biology and medicine. It's like, we see something happen, we put a name to it, and that, then we act like we know something about it. It's like, you know, you're just describing something that everybody sees, but sure. now there's a name to it, so there's job security and how smart you are. Um, but what they did is they did something called the bunker trials. So they put, it's mainly college students because who else is going to volunteer for something like this? <laughs> and we so have, right now, yeah. So they, so they actually put them in these in these in these pill bunkers, like World War II pill bunkers, and they were just like these cold concrete rooms, completely dark. I think there was like a sink and a toilet in there or something, and uh, and a cot, not even a bed, just like a cot. And they just say, "We're locking you in here for 14 hours a day." And then you go out for 10 hours a day, you do whatever you want, and then you come back for 14 hours, and that's... So the average person slept... Tw- no, no windows, right? No windows. Completely completely dark, cool, I think in the like mid-60 degree Fahrenheit sort of range. I mean, this is obviously well, well before cell phones or anything like that. Not, not enough light to read, so there's nothing to do. Um, and they'd lay down these beds, and, they'd, and they would sleep for 12 and a half hours. Now, over the course of about three to six weeks, everybody progressively slept less and less and less until 98% of people were sleeping eight hours a night. How did did they know how long you were sleeping? They would check on you. Um, And then, uh, and and I think, I think when they woke up, they like knocked on the door or something and told people 
sure. or notified somebody that they're awake. Um, but everybody eventually sleeps eight hours a night, which means that they're laying in a cot in a cold, dark room for six hours a day with nothing to do and not falling asleep. How many people can do that? Like almost nobody in modern society would do that. You would fall asleep, right? Because you just because um, we're all sleep deprived. Sure. But then after all of that, after you do that for a couple of weeks and you've slept eight hours a night now for a couple of weeks in a row and you're going to sleep about the same time, waking up about the same time, that's what we call sleep adapted, which we know, okay, now you're at your physiologic peak. So then we can have you come in in the morning we can test you on something. We teach you something and test you on something or test you on something you already do. It doesn't matter. The research has been done in every which way. Strength, endurance, coordination, cognitive functioning, problem solving, memory, doesn't matter. Test you on something after you've been sleeping eight hours a night. And now tomorrow night, you only get to sleep six hours. And you come in and you take the test and you say, how do you think you did? 95, 99% of people will say, I did worse, I was tired. And then they show you the data. Yep, you definitely did worse. Here's, here's the data. Day two, same thing. Day three, maybe the same thing. But day four, 100% of people will say, I've completely adapted to the six hours a night and I'm doing as well as I've ever done. And they show you that and nope, you're still doing worse. And they argue with, they'll argue with the researchers and say, you've collected the data wrong. I know I did as well as I've ever done. <laughs> and so uh, when people say, first of all, when people say what goes on when you, or what's happening when you're asleep, I'm like, well, what, what's happening when you're awake? I mean, a million things happen when you're asleep. Those are the rough outlines of it, but there's so many, there's so much complexity to that. I mean, there's hundreds of neurotransmitters involved. The different stages of sleep, you know, they're changing your respiratory rate, changing your heart rate, you're changing your blood pressure, changing your glucose metabolism, you're changing your hormone concentration, you're setting your appetite, you know, your, the neuroregulation of your appetite, what you feel like eating the next day is based on how you sleep, how hungry you are is based on how well you sleep. Um, whether or not you still have adenosine in your brain determines whether or not you need caffeine because all caffeine does is block adenosine receptors. Mm. Um, yeah, that's right. We, yeah, we talked about that with Rob Wolf. Yeah. Yeah. The episode number is... 678. 678. Check that out. It's pretty awesome. And we spoke on element yeah. and the value there that helps with energy versus just lots of caffeine. Shameless yeah. plug team. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I love element. Um, I mean, what really sold me on the element was when we started mixing it with tequila for margaritas. And then I started putting the chocolate salt in my coffee. Like I was in up your energy, but decreased your oh my sleep God. value. Like dude, that, when, when we were like, do, do you remember? I, ha I had that at Rob's house. Yeah. So Nikki made me a margarita with their lemon lime. And I'm like, no, oh yeah. Well, we give me making, boxes of this. We were making the habanero, uh, like whatever their habanero was. Yeah. Spicy marks. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. And, and the, all the, all the chocolate flavors are good. And yeah, the coffee, and coffee for sure. Unreal. Um, and, and, and for people like us, uh, you know, if, if you don't eat a lot of carbs, you definitely need a lot more sodium. And that's pretty hard to get it, you know, uh, unless you just really, really, really dig salt and, you know, eat, eat all day. Um, well, yeah. on the, the sleep factor, one, one of the cool things that I took away from hearing you speak, present, and then talking about it was the, the skill acquisition phase. So when I'm coaching a bunch of teenagers, mm -hmm. like introducing so break it down into the model and we speak about this in the power athlete methodology but define and model like my movement so if i'm teaching lacrosse or if it's weightlifting so define and model and then give them the opportunity so exposing them to the stress the stimulus but that first day that first practice or lifting session i'm not going to get mad at them for doing it wrong right so if they're first introduced and we see a lot of you know, inexperienced coaches, like, get mad at the athletes. That's one thing I can't stand. 
But now I have an expectation following practice number two or weightlifting session number two. They've been exposed to it. I still have an expectation. I can help set them up. But now we need to accelerate. Hey, we need to pick this up because I have more advanced skills to, to do it. So I can hold them to an expectation. But that first day, just define it, model it, expose them to the stimulus. And then I know, hey, they're going to go to sleep. They're going to process this at a higher level than these high school level kids can comprehend. Right. So I'm, I almost took a step back by set up and set free. So anyone that's been through our education, uh, powerathletehq.com forward slash academy, has seen this like set up and set free. And then the next day, the next opportunity, I can come back and hold them accountable yeah. for that. Yeah, and and it's even more counterproductive than that. If, if you think about it, what am I going to cement tonight? What I've done today. So if I did it wrong today, that's, that's what I'm cementing in. So the ideal thing is to not give a shit about performance and just focus on the movement or the activity. It's like... I don't care if you have to go one-tenth of normal speed to yeah. get the movement down. That's what you want to cement. Now, the interesting well, thing... Well, it's because the body doesn't know speed. Uh, Will, Will Shields told me this years ago. Um, he just... And he made an interesting point to me one time. He's like, my body doesn't know speed. My body only knows movement. Mm -hmm. So he would actually replicate all this technique super slow-mo. And he wanted to make sure it was perfect because he was convinced that his body didn't know the difference between fast and speed and like slow. Yeah. It just knew movement. And if he could do his technique perfectly slow, that the time he had to dial it up, he's like, I don't have to teach my body to go fast. It knows how to do it. Well, and he goes, it doesn't know the difference. It just knows whether or not I do it well. So he actually did everything in slow-mo. And then the minute that all of a sudden the ball was snapped, the dude could move 100 miles an hour and knew what he was doing. Well, that, that, that's what uh, a lot of people say about GSP. Uh, that when they train any kind of technique with GSP, it frustrates the hell out of them because he goes like one tenth of normal speed yeah. until he he reaches what we you know what you call called, the it's the called myelin it's called myelination uh, the yeah. the unconscious competence yeah. phase right so it's, when it's once myelination. you once you're unconsciously competent now you can react with reflex and that's all the speed well, you need well we learned that in jits like um, what kind of frustrates me a little bit is like we'll kind of demo the movements and I think I, and I fuck this up constantly like I'll try to do shit too fast mm -hmm. and it's because you're in this class environment but if it was just me working with somebody it would be like hey dude show me exactly how we move through this piece right and like you know and uh, for the guys that are teaching and I run into this with Shandi a little bit he's been doing it so long it's so second nature and he makes it look so easy right. but there's a lot of nuance to it that I need because right. it's, it, it's an unfamiliar motor pattern to me. Well, that's why we often see that professionals, athletes, experts don't necessarily make the best coaches. So then within, this is again tooting our own horn, within the methodology, we introduce that competency model yeah. and the different phases and cool things that we, you can ask to an athlete or pose or say right. and that help determine what level of competence they're at. So the unconscious incompetence this is when somebody starts to fight back. Or if you say, hey, man, I need you to get a little lower on your squat. And they're like, I, I went low enough. Right. They're fighting back. They are so unconscious about their, their execution of movement that they're arguing against you. Right. So we see that a lot with high schoolers. But this, the cool thing is we introduce in the methodology that to help guide coaches again so they don't necessarily react the wrong way that then takes away from their relationship with the athlete, which is important. Yeah. So what, uh, the other thing that's amazed me about sleep is everything else in this world you learn from day one, right? So like, you know, a baby's born, can't walk, 
uh, can't roll over, can't speak, whatever. But mm-hmm. the one that, thing they can do better than any human on the planet at that moment is sleep. Right. I mean, to watch your kids, I mean, watch a newborn sleep, like, it's unreal. And the level at which they do it, they don't move. I mean, it's just, like... My, my oldest son slept about 20 hours a day for the first six weeks he was alive. And we were like, why are all these people complaining about kids? I mean, this is easy. What are you talking about? And then all of a sudden they woke up. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then we had... And yeah, then they wake up and you're like, holy shit. But, well, uh, but he, it, then he slept less, but then we had Cole and Cole was not a sleeper, man. Like so he, he, uh, like the sleep thing is, is always amazing. And then as we go through life, you know, we learn more things. We, you know, you start adding to this, you know, paradigm. And the one thing you lose is the ability to sleep. So it's crazy that you're born with no skill, no knowledge, nothing. But you inherently know how to do something better at that moment than you'll ever do in your life. I remember taking a psychology class in, in undergrad. <clears throat> And the psychologist, uh, the professor was trying to convince us that sleep is a learned behavior. I'm like, I don't get that. And, and, and it's basically because he's fiddling with the definition of learned. Sure. Uh, but something that's really interesting about that is on, on the topic of what we were just talking about, uh, this woman named Sarah Mednick wrote this book called Take a Nap. And she, and she references a lot of these studies. She doesn't go into a whole lot of detail about them, but um, I learned all this like maybe 10 years ago. So I, I, I don't want to be too crazy with quoting data but um what it definitely shows is that once somebody sleep adapted like you know post bunker trial so somebody sleeping well <clears throat> every night if you te- if you teach them something in the morning and then say come back at seven o'clock tonight and we're going to test you on it when you come back at seven o'clock tonight you will be worse than you left your training session right you will there will be some decay of what you learned once you go home and go to sleep and you come back the next morning, if I tested you immediately without training you anymore, you would, you would test better than you left your training sessions because you actually learned while you're asleep. You cemented some things in and now you're better. Interestingly, if you put naps in there, you get the same effect. So if I teach something, somebody, and a lot of UFC fighters do this, because um, like if I have eight weeks to cram boxing, like I'm not, like I'm a great, grappler i'm not a great striker and i'm fighting a striker so now i'm gonna only box for eight weeks i'm gonna really get as good as i can at this well if i train and nap and then come back and test i test exactly as though i've gone home and gone to sleep the whole night now i go home and go to sleep and i come back the next day again way better than i left that training and some UFC fighters can take two naps a day. So they're really getting four days of training every day. Wow. Um, so you train, take a nap, test. Is there, train, a, is there an optimal test. time for a nap? Yes. And, and her book has this really cool little uh, pinwheel on it where you can put in the time of day you woke up and what you want to optimize. So a short nap optimizes creativity, a medium-term nap, so short nap is like, say, under 15 minutes, uh, 15, 20 minutes. And then a medium term lap, sort of 30 to 45 minutes, that does cognitive functioning. So improve your concentration, your memory, your working memory, your problem-solving skills, things like that. And then if you do a full sleep cycle, so 90 to 120 minutes, you get essentially the full benefit of being asleep for the deep. night. You uh, go through deep sleep and REM sleep. So this is uh, Khabib. 
you know, Khabib the fighter, yeah, yeah. Um, his uh, entire recovery deal is, is around sleep. Mm. So they would train and they would sleep. They'd wake up and they would train. So his biggest problem with training three times a day was figuring out how to work this whole sleep in. Right. The whole thing. He's like, oh, you guys do all this, like, you know, hot and cold. And he was just kind of kicking holes and all these people talking about it. He goes, it's sleep. It's the best form of recovery. Mm-hmm. And he's like, the only reason I can't train four times a day is there's no way for me to work the naps in. Right, and so his whole deal, and I, I just thought it was incredible that like I, I didn't, training, I didn't know that, but yeah, yeah, yeah that, that, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'll, I'll and, find the and clip. go surprise, big surprise, he's like the best ever, right? Uh, I mean, they call him. <laughs> I, I, uh, as Tex knows, I hate the fucking word term, the goat. Yeah. And when I hear it, I want to set myself on fire. Well, the goat has two meanings, Sean. Yes. Goat could mean the greatest of all time, or you could kick somebody in the butt six times afterwards. Yeah, like there, are fi- there's lots of terms. The fish. Oh, that dude's a goat. So the, he's the guy you target to go after because they suck. Ah, okay. Well, oh, uh, I was I was thinking of the goat, uh, the gooch, <laughs> the, the goat. No, from the movie Waiting. Yeah, yeah. The, the oh, John. I uh, I'm not remembering. Doc's going to show you the goat after this. <laughs> ah, nice. <laughs> well, walk but, right uh, in that but one. like you know, like uh, uh, Khabib one, he retired too soon. But um, I did really appreciate uh, every time he gets interviewed. I do like the way he speaks about stuff. S- scapegoat also. Ah, the, so scapegoat. the negative. Yeah. yeah. But, but his whole deal is all based around sleep. And mm-hmm. he just kind of was like shitting on all like the westernized, uh, you know, these guys are doing saunas and they're doing cold tubs and they're doing all this other bullshit. And he's like, sleep, it's the best form of recovery. And he goes, that's why he felt that, uh, what is it, uh, Diagestan, the, where they're from? Is, no, it's, um, I know I'm fucking it up. But where they're from, and part of his whole training camp is like, you train, you sleep, you train, you sleep. Right. And the only reason we can't train more is we can't get enough naps. And I was like, pretty fucking good. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's definitely the thing to optimize. So there's value, you know, there, there's research that is, is pretty unequivocal that there's value to hot and cold and there's value to, you know, all, all sorts of little, you know, IR, like all, all sorts of things that you can do to accentuate. But... If you aren't sleeping well, none of that stuff is nearly as good. Like none of the stuff is nearly as good as just sleeping well. So if you if you have to make a choice, then you should focus on sleep. And in fact, when I when I work with my private clients, I tell them if you don't if you don't sleep well, you shouldn't exercise the next day. You should stay active, but you shouldn't train to get better the next day because all you're doing is you're stacking up the physiologic damage that you didn't even repair from last night. And now you're going to go add on to that. And now even if you get great sleep, there's probably too much physiologic damage to fully recover tonight. So just stay active. You know, you can exercise, but you shouldn't be exercising in the sense that you're trying to increase your performance at something. I I was real big on if I got sick or someone's around, I go lift weights. And now if I get sick, I'm like, I'm just going to chill out a little bit. I'll ride the bike or do something easier just because I'm figuring I don't need to dig myself a bigger hole. Right. What are some actionable steps that people can take right now? Is it a sleep routine? Is it waking up with natural light? But that makes sense. <coughs> like, what can people do right now? Well, you know what? I, I was going to go on that one. Uh, Rob and I had this interesting debate. Um, you know, the idea of like waking up in natural light, but then Rob Steele's like, well, you would have to have curtains that opened at a certain time because what you don't want to do is you want to sleep in a dark room. And if you, because I tried this, I, I slept with my curtains open, uh, with the blinds open. The problem is there's so much ambient light. Uh, when we first moved here to oh, Texas, there well, was the no, moon here and well, where we live is well, so, so powerful. Originally, um, this area of the hill country was considered a dark zone where there was no ambient light. And then 
these fucking developers and hey, we'll shit cross over the county line, John. We well, got a great in Hayes. Well, what they did is they put all of these, you know, homes in this, and now we have, I think it's called like uh, parasitic light, or they have a term for this, uh, um, you know, bleed effect. And now it's dramatically lighter at night than it's ever been. Hmm. So before I used to sleep, it was pitch black, and now I can't do the same thing because, you know, obviously it's it's more bright during the night. But when I talked to Rob about that, he's like, in a perfect world, you would have curtains and a totally black room. And then it's a certain point they would open. But how many of those people have that? So. Yeah. So um, actually, like we're talking about the bunker trials, you don't need light to wake up in the morning. If you've, if you've completely recovered, you've done your sleep your body cycles, just fucking wakes up. the cortisol level in your body temperature wake you up. So like I said, Cortisol keeps you alert in proportion to your environment at a certain time in the morning. It will be high enough to cause you to wake up. That's your baseline of participating in your environment. Now, there's a lot of there is a there's a lot of uh, physiologic and even neurologic benefit to getting outside immediately and getting a lot of bright light in your eyes for you know 15, 30 minutes or something like that. And then, you know, there's, uh, there's like, a, you know, there's an ideal angle for it and all this stuff. But that what that's doing more than anything is it's, it's cementing your circadian rhythm, cement, cementing your circadian rhythms so that that's going to be the time you feel like waking up the next day. And then you'll feel like going to sleep at the right time that night if you get that bright light. That's a stimulus that evolutionarily we evolved to have. So. Uh, getting the light in your eyes is important, but it doesn't have to be done in your bedroom, right? Like you could go outside and have your coffee on your porch and, you know, if you're facing towards the east and get, you know, your bright light therapy. Uh, you can do it with artificial lights, but it, it takes pretty high, uh, 10,000 lux uh, minimum, and it needs to be up about, I want to say it's like 30 degrees from your line of sight. Um, so the, like those are all fine tuning things, and that's more like, we could we could talk about how do you shift your circadian rhythm like if you're you know traveling or something you're flying you're flying across multiple time zones how do you shift your circadian rhythm like there, there's some tricks to that but as far as just your day-to-day life um uh we can we can link to a, a pdf have your we'll do like a well-born okay uh, landing page or something and we can link to a pdf for your audience <clears throat> um and i have i have well, we'll uh, let's set up a landing page with that information and all the stuff, and uh, we'll just shoot them that. That'll be nice. And yeah. Easy. Um, so, I've, I've created a PDF, and through all all my consulting, I do all like anybody who wants to do their anybody who's really techy and they want to do a bunch of gadgets, they want to track their sleep, they want to use meditation software, whatever. Like I don't care, whatever you want to do. Um, but you know the the foundation the the foundation of sleep is going to sleep at the right time, waking up at the right time, not having alcohol or drugs in your system that are going to interfere with your sleep, not having so much stress. The most powerful thing that I do is decrease people's stress because most of us aren't even that aware that we're stressed. I told you that story of like four days into the trials, everybody's like, I feel great. And why do you feel great? Like, how do you feel in fight or flight? You feel superhuman, right? So how do you feel 20% on the way to fight or flight? You feel better. Like you feel a little more alert, I feel a little more quicker, right? Now, it's actually shutting down your prefrontal cortex and interfering with decision-making and all sorts of bad things. But people feel like your self-awareness goes away when you're sleep-deprived, just like when you drink alcohol. And in fact, there's lots of research comparing intoxication to sleep deprivation. And it's very linear. I mean, it correlates very well. Yeah, Raph used to ask me if I ever messed around with sleep deprivation. 
So eight being awake eighteen hours is equal to three beers. And I was like, well, that's makes math pretty easy. Yeah, um, ah, dude. Um, I oh, dude, like so. And Doc, maybe you can shed some light on this. When we were younger, like when I was in college, like we didn't really need to sleep very much. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, 18 hours was like nothing. I mean, especially like getting up early, we would have uh, practice or conditioning first thing in the morning, and then we would go to school, come back and have practice. Uh, and then I had to study. I mean, I was taking a full load, um, right. was graduating early. So, I mean, there were many times it was like two, three, four in the morning, finishing, going, laying down for two hours and getting up. And right. we did that pretty religiously right. and still lifted weights and trained it at a high level. <laughs> And even when I was younger in the NFL, uh, it didn't seem to bother me. It wasn't until I turned maybe 30, 31, 32, and I had my kids, Mm. where all of a sudden we were with the twins. And I don't think I slept any more than like 45 minutes for the first three months Mm. because uh, the kids ate every four hours. And I would like wake up, and because there was two of them, you would like get them up, get them changed, get them ready, set them up, uh, because Kate was breastfeeding. So you'd get like, you'd set up one, and then you get the other one because she would do like the football thing. And, uh, And then I would lay down. And then they would stop eating, and you'd get them back up, you'd change them, and put them down, and then they would sleep. And then we would sleep. And it was like that for three months. And uh, I remember, like, I've always, maybe I've told the story on here uh, or not, but uh, I remember as I was changing my daughter, Jamie, she had diarrhea all over my arm, like shot out. And I remember I took, like, the baby wipe and just, like, wiped it off, put her there, and laid down. It was, like, two <laughs> days later before I showered. And I was, like, showering, and I was, like, man, I think I got shit on a couple days ago. <laughs> and that's how sleep-deprived we were. Like, my wife and I were, like, hallucinating. Right. And uh, to this day, like, we still laugh about it. And I think that's why, um, regardless of, you know, whatever you go through a marriage, like, I think, like, that suffering and bonding will somehow always tie us. Where, like, I'd be surprised if anybody's like, I'm getting a divorce. I'm like, no, 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 we went through this together. We're not fucking breaking up. Yeah. Uh, but... The one thing I remember is as this was happening, I kept thinking, fuck, I should have had these kids when I was like 18 or 19 or 20. I didn't need to sleep. So I didn't, uh, maybe it was perception, I don't know, but that's always whenever I meet people, they're like, oh, I'm 50, I'm having my first kid. I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. Like, this is like, like this is a young man's game, like where you don't have to sleep in your, uh, you know, late, you know, 18, 19, 20, 22. But then all of a sudden at 30, it was so much more dramatic. And even now, if I lose a night of sleep, it's pretty dramatic. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, you're, you're more resilient to everything when you're younger and childbearing. Evolutionary, you know, tra- childbearing started around 14 or 15 years old, yeah. and that was normal. And so you think about, like, when are you the horniest in your life? It's like, okay, that's, that's, that's when you're genetically primed to be having kids. And, and you, you can recover better, and there's lots of reasons for it. So one of them is hormonal. Uh, one of them is just, like, your metabolic stores. Like, uh, how, how well can you store resources? how good is your circulation? How many senescent cells do you have? You know, like there, there's all sorts of things going on. Uh, even peptides, you know, peptides are just cellular signals and you know, those deplete. And so you're idealized when you're young and you're much more resilient and you know, you're, you have what we call neuroplasticity, right? So your brain can adapt to new things and learn new things a lot faster. Like I'm not a grumpy old man because I'm 52. I'm a grumpy old man because my brain isn't plastic anymore and I don't want to think about anything any differently than I've thought about it the first 50 years of my life. And, um, but anyway, to get back to your point, um, uh, my this PDF is all about decreasing stress. Um, and it's the most powerful thing that I do with my private clients. And it, it seems ridiculously simplistic. Um, and I came up with it over the course of years, but... Um, basically what we want to do is we want to reapproximate evolution as the best we can. So if you study hunter gatherers today, which 
Um, there's a, there's a lot of them still around, um, and they do tr- they do so wait, sleep trackers. Wait on. a minute, you're using an evolutionary model. I know it's insane. That sounds crazy I because know. you know you get uh, Alan Ergonon, you get uh, you know Lane uh, Norton, and all these guys that refuse to use an evolutionary model for nutrition. Right, it's all bullshit, and they just want to kick holes and fucking cast stones at it. Right, you know. But whenever I talk to Robbie, it's like we have no other model to work from. It, I mean, everybody talks about you know saving the planet whatever like we are the planet like we're part of we're part of this whole well, thing right it's well, all they separate it's, this deal it's where all it's, one system and we we evolved on this planet just like the trees did and yeah. the other animals and grass well, and what like, do you mean we didn't evolve in a vacuum <laughs> whenever they're like we have to save the planet save the environment you're like well that involves us too. that that's part of me like i'm well, part of that <laughs> whenever i hear like the what is it like the world economic forum refer to that why do i always feel like we're the ones they're trying to get rid of. Like right. whenever these people are like, we have to save the environment. It's kind of like years ago uh, when I was working with CrossFit, I went to this uh, lunch and their lawyer kept talking about protecting the brand. Mm-hmm. We have to protect, or uh, my job and what we're trying to do is protect the brand. And I was like, yeah, it makes sense. And then like further into the conversation, I realized that they were saying that he, that like I was predatory, right. that they were like protecting the brand against people like me. And I was like, well, you invited me and I felt like we were on the same team. Mm-hmm. And it was very clear that like anything that wasn't them was against them. Have, have you seen that meme that says, uh, uh, fuck, I have, I'm a, the, the one, I think basically the, the 1% are basically evil or something like that. And then there's 4% that are their useful idiots. The ninety percent of the world's asleep, and there's five percent of people trying to wake up the ninety percent. Yeah, the one percent uses the four percent to crush the five percent, so they didn't wake up the ninety percent. Sure. So it it's kind of that that same logic. I I mean I'm, I agree with Rob. I don't know what other kind of model you can use. I mean, man, for one thing, we're we're like a blip on. Yeah. Like on the timeline of the planet, we're, we're well, joke. Like we're, we're sneeze. Unless you're a Christian and you believe the world is only 6,000 years old and dinosaurs are there to fake us to test our faith. Could. Yeah. I, I, I have no comments on any of that. I don't, um, but if, if you like, again, you study hunter gatherers today, they, they don't have sleep problems. They don't have words for insomnia because they don't have insomnia. Um, and they sleep as, a, a, just a part of their life, right? They, they don't think they aren't even think about it as distinct phases of life. No it's apps. just a part of no being meditation like, apps. No meditation apps. No, uh, no blue blocking glasses. Any of that. So, so how did they evolve? Well, the sun goes down, <coughs> the blue light decreases in their eyes, the temperature goes down, they can't see very well. They go tuck away someplace safe. They don't interact with the world, and they fall asleep about three hours after the sun goes down. They wake up around the same time the sun's coming up. <coughs> Because equatorially, the night's about eight hours long, and that's how you know that's where people lived. Uh, that's where hunter gatherers still live today. Um, so, decreasing stress is super important. So, um, we live in a world today where most people just have way higher stress hormones than they would have had two hundred years ago, three hundred years ago, four hundred years ago. Um, and so that's, you know, we're meditation and gadgets to help you meditate and things like that. Box breathing, anything like that, anything you can do to decrease your, your stress, even for one minute, if you decrease your stress one minute today, that you're better off tonight than you were, would be if you didn't do that. And the more you can do it, the, the better. So daytime decrease stress. Now, when you go to sleep, you'll, there's lots, there's lots of controversy around this, um, 
and I will argue, I'll argue with any, anybody about this. Uh, you know, people will say, well, you, you know, if you go to bed and you can't fall asleep every certain amount of time, get up and go, no, no. All right. So what, what you want to do is you want to give yourself eight hours in bed every night, regardless of how much you sleep, eight hours in bed. So you have an alarm clock. You have two alarm clocks. You have one alarm clock that's going to wake you up after you've been in bed for eight hours. Even if you don't think you need that, you, you have to set that alarm clock because that could be a form of stress. The other alarm clock is the alarm clock to start getting ready for bed. Equally as important, right? It's just as important as the morning one because you have to be prepared when you get into bed. You have to be prepared to sleep for eight hours. Ideally, that alarm clock to get ready for bed would be two or three hours before you go to bed. Nobody does that. That's not realistic. So I say an hour. An hour before bed, alarm clock goes off. An hour. That's an hour before you're going to get in bed. That alarm clock goes off. You start getting ready for bed. You decrease the blue light in your eyes, and you can do that with glasses or there's special light bulbs. There's computer like there's things you can put on your computer and television to block blue light. All that. So you do whatever you can to decrease the blue light in your in your eyes. You turn the thermostat down in your house, so your body temperature starts going down. You can even do a you could even do like a, um, a cool or I wouldn't do like an ice cold shower or an ice bath. Uh, because that releases a lot of stress hormones. Um, but you could, you know, it, whatever to decrease your body temperature. And then you have to quit interacting with your environment. You have to quit doing stress, stressful things. So if you want to watch television with blue blocking glasses on, fine. Don't watch the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Or, you know, don't watch porn. Uh, like you, we is don't. Is that true for everybody? Because for me, I could like, um, so just give you an example. If there's anything viral on TV, my wife can't go to sleep. I can literally watch people get cut in half and fall asleep within seconds, but I can also go get in a pool, which I do most nights. I'll get in for like five to 10 minutes mm-hmm. when it's like 40 degrees. Yeah. Walk in, take a shower and go right to sleep. Again, I, I think you're well sleep deprived and you produce a lot of adenosine. Yeah. <laughs> just somehow power through. But if you're waking up in the middle of the night, that, you know, that proves you aren't really ready for sleep. You're just falling asleep. So uh, an hour before bed, you start getting prepared to go to bed. And again, that's decreasing blue light, it's decreasing stimulation, it's decreasing your body temperature. Whatever kind of a routine you want to do to do that, do that. Now you get into bed an hour later, and on your bedside table is a piece of paper that's handwritten piece of paper that there's a, lot, a vertical line down the middle. On the left is your to-do list, on the right is your to-worry list. And this is all in the PDF. People can download it. It's all, you know, they can print this all out. It's ready. The instructions are there and all that. The to-do list, you write out your to-do list for as far in advance as you're likely to worry about something. So for me, that's like my to-do list till 10 a.m. the next day. I don't think very far in the future. Some people worry about shit that's six months away. Put that on your to-do list. Whatever it is that you are likely to think about on your to-do list, on the right is to-worry list. And the difference between the to-do and to-worry is the to-worry is shit you can't do anything about. But you don't want to forget to worry about it. And people will literally not fall asleep because they're worrying about something that they don't have any control over. And if you, do, and if you don't have them write that down, then this fails. So now I have this, everything that's stressful in my life is on one piece of paper, okay? Now I make this agreement to myself, everything we just talked about, <clears throat> which you have to convince yourself of this first, and this is what takes the, the right, you know, certain amount of time, three, four, five, six weeks maybe, to convince yourself that the best you will ever be at handling that list is after you've gotten a full night's sleep. 
you're maximally you're maximally prepared physically and mentally and emotionally after you've slept well. That's the best you're ever going to be. Why would you not handle the stressful list when you're at your best? Sure. Makes sense, right? So from the time I get in bed until the time my alarm clock goes off, I have no idea what time it is. So this is a good time to have blackout curtains in your room, aluminum foil if you can't afford that, um, whatever. But totally dark room so that you don't know what time it is. Lay down in your bed and you start meditating, you start breathing, you start progressive muscle relaxation, whatever the hell you want to do, anything you can do, learn some, learn three or four different relaxation techniques and lay in bed and relax. Don't worry about how long you've been asleep. Don't worry about if you fall asleep. Don't worry about when you fall asleep. Because if I lay in my bed and I meditate for eight hours and I don't sleep at all, I'm still way better off than if I just stayed up for eight hours, right? I'm probably 50% better off. If I wake up two or three hours after I've gone to sleep, the other part of this is you can't have a clock. Again, you don't know what time it is. You don't look at your phone. It doesn't matter what time it is. If I wake up and have to go to the bathroom, I get up, I go to the bathroom, I come back, I lay down in bed, and I'm going to relax, do some box breathing, do some meditation, do some progressive muscle relaxation, whatever it is I want to do. And I'm going to lay there and relax until my alarm clock goes off. Now, since I don't know what time it is, my alarm clock might go off in 15 minutes. That means I got seven hours and 45 minutes of sleep and 15 minutes of meditation. Great. Now I'm the best I'm going to be at handling my list when that alarm clock goes off. If it's one o'clock in the morning and I lay there and relax, meditate, whatever, I'm going to fall back asleep. You just are. Like, there's no way around that. If you lay there and relax, you are going to fall back asleep. If you don't worry about how long it's been, and you just say, my goal is to be in bed for eight hours a night. Whether I'm mat meditating or sleeping, doesn't matter. I'm just going to be in bed for eight hours a night. That's the, that's the best possible way I can get to tomorrow. If I get up and go in another room and read and make myself tired, maybe that takes an hour. Maybe that takes an hour and 45 minutes. I didn't get any benefit out of that. I was awake. I was actually consuming resources. If I'm laying in bed and meditating... Like if you're good at meditating, it's pretty darn close to being asleep, right? Sure. There's a lot of there's a lot of physiological benefits. And then when that alarm clock goes off in the morning, you take care of your list, you reduce your stress as much as you can during the day, and then you know tomorrow night there's going to be an alarm clock to get ready for your own to bed, and you do the same thing. Again, sounds super simplistic. The most important thing is that you have to convince yourself that there's nothing worth worrying about. Right, because you're going to handle that in the morning. And if you think of something that's not on your list, I recommend having a pen or pencil next to the bed. And this should be handwritten because you remember it better if you handwrite it. If you if you think about something that's not on your list, you have permission to turn on a light and write that down, and then go back to you know go back to bed, because we don't want something spinning you out. And that's the most that's the most powerful sleep you know, techniques that I have. I mean, that that's really the key. Anybody, anybody who can do that. I've done this with, I did this with a 78-year-old woman who hadn't slept more than four hours in 25 years, and she started sleeping eight hours a night. Wow. That's great. Yes, we'll include that in our show notes. What about um, people that have, like, um, I'm, I, dude, I was supposed to do, so um, 
the dentist that I go see here in Texas, uh, Dr. Greg, who's been on the podcast, is great. He used to make me these mouthpieces. Mm-hmm. And the mouthpiece kind of set my jaw. And, I, dude, I slept great. Um, I ended up breaking the mouthpiece. I went back to him. And they changed the law where now if something helps you sleep, it has to be prescribed and you have to have a sleep study. And so I like went through this whole rigmarole to try to get the sleep study and all this shit. Never got it all done. Still can't get the mouthpiece. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've slept dramatically better with the mouthpiece. Um, Dr. Tom gave me a CPAP. I have like one of those nasal pillow things that I wear on occasion. But uh, I definitely sleep better with that mouthpiece. It's just, it's fucking ridiculous to me that the government would come in, uh, you know, and start basically like, uh, because the appliance in your mouth helps you sleep different, they want to regulate it. So that's not an insurance problem, it's actually a legal problem? Yeah, yeah so he legally could not make me a mouthpiece without a, uh, I guess, a corroborating... What, what state was this in? This is in Texas. Hmm. A corroborating sleep study that supported... Because I called you about this, and you were like, I've never heard of this shit. Hmm. I believe me, I went to him. He's like, I can't make it without the sleep study. I went to the sleep study people, and I was like, well, dude, I also know that the limitations of sleep studies, it has to be done at your place. So then they had to come over, and I just never got it fucking figured out. Wow, that's crazy. I didn't know that existed. But, um, um, but I do have that nasal pillow and I'll wear it. But the problem I run into is I'll fall asleep with it, which is great. And then at some point I knock it off. Right. And I might only wear it for like an hour or two. And I just have to like keep doing it until I can sleep through the night. And it's the world's best birth control device, <laughs> CPAP. <laughs> um, no, well, so no. There, there's a lot of evidence that... Um, because of how we live now, so it has to do with activity levels, also has to do with hormones, uh, has to do with uh, you know the way we breathe. There's there's lots there's lots of players in this, and genetics is a is a is a big component of it. Uh, body habitus matters, but if you if if you have sort of a, a, a suboptimally framed jaw, teeth, upper you know upper jaw, that changes the 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 pharynx, the opening of the pharynx, and then your hormones set what's called neuromuscular tension. So none of your muscles, like none of our muscles right now are truly relaxed. Um, they all have a certain amount of tension in them and that's set hormonally, neurologically. So if you, if you can change neuromuscular tension and you can change the alignment of the jaw, you can change whether or not the, the pharynx collapses and the, and the collapse is what causes snoring. And when snoring's bad enough, it causes, you know, what we call obstructive sleep apnea, which just simply means that it you're having to overcome so much pressure to breathe that it wakes you up. Uh, I think what happened to me um, was I got hit in the jaw uh, when I was right. in high school. I got into a fight. Um, I got jumped by skinheads. Actually, it was kind of a fucking gnarly deal. I was with a black uh, buddy of mine, a guy named Daryl Jones, played at Washington State. Uh, we were in high school. Um, we had played in like this, uh, there was like an offensive line game, kind mm-hmm. of like a passing league, but they did for O-line. We became buddies. He was from like Cyprus. So um, he hits me up. We, uh, he met some girls. I don't know how the whole thing went down. So we ended up going to this party in Huntington, in uh, Hermosa Beach. Um, all of a sudden we walk in, you know, you realize you're like in a place where you shouldn't fucking Wrong be. Place. <laughs> Wrong place. And so we're standing there and he's talking and he's a big black dude talking to these white girls. All of a sudden this dude walks over and he looks at me. He's like, you got a problem? No. Looks at him, drops the end bomb on him. As soon as he says what, uh, we both get hit with bottles. Mm. So he got clubbed in the back of the head. I got hit across the side of the face. Mm. 
Um, thank God that when he, the dude hit me, it broke. And I dragged the dude across the party, got on top of him, fucking smashed his face. Uh, Daryl got knocked out. He was laying flat on his back. They broke the bottle and were shanking him on his back. Wow. So I ran over, knocked the dudes off, helped him up. And like at this point, like I'm still fucked up. Yeah. And uh, he's all fucked up. We fall back into the fence and literally take the entire fence out, right? Like we're big dudes. He's like yeah. 300 pounds or probably 250. Knock the fence out. We then now all of a sudden we're in the neighbor's yard. I like drag him up and he's like, let's get him. And I'm like, fuck, let's get out of here. Yeah. So we go to the side of the gate on the house on this neighbor and it's there's a, uh, a deadbolt, like a lock. Mm-hmm. So I basically take five steps back, ran, put my head through it, knocked it out of its hinges, ripped it out of the side of the house, you, stumbled forward. You, you went head first. Head first right into the gate. That's a smart idea. Yeah. I don't, right. You don't want to damage anything. You no, know. with my forearms. Like, oh, just don't. Okay. Just <laughs> don't. You're no, no, put no. your head <laughs> No, but like. basically, like, ran through it with my shoulder forearms, knocked it out, ripped it out of the hinges. The thing spins. I fucking face plant. He gets back. We get into his car. There are raining bottles on us. We get in the car, dude, like go home, like his back's all like literally shanked up. Like it's all cut from this broken bottle. Uh, my jaw was pretty much broken yeah. and I got fucked up. Um, I was supposed to go on a recruiting trip like the next weekend. So I couldn't get my jaw wired shut. Oh, all right. And so my jaw, I know was broken. Yeah. And I just basically just kind of like didn't say a lot, just kind of sat there and was mm-hmm. like, mm. and ever since then, uh, I think when I sleep, my jaw gets into a weird position. Yeah. And uh, it was like night and day. And, um, I mean, dude, I still remember like fucking. So, me, but when that guy hit me, that was so. So, yeah. so during REM sleep, of course, our our skeletal muscle is paralyzed. So whatever whatever skeletal muscle is holding your jaw in place completely relaxes when you go into REM sleep, and so that allows the say like your TMJ to open up and your yeah. jaw to get a little crooked. That you know that would make perfect sense. You could compromise your airway that way. Yeah. So when I put that mouthpiece in, I actually clenched my jaw and I breathe through my nose, and mm-hmm. I don't have any issues. Mm-hmm. So it's something I need to go get done. And yeah, and so probably that's pulling your jawline forward and keeping your tongue out so that you can breathe through your nose. Yeah. Uh, I mean, a lot of a lot of mouth breathing is because their tongue's falling back. Yeah. yeah so I mean, it's yeah. and, and it's wild because uh, um, normal like on occasion, uh, like when Jamie um, got bit by the dog, she. Uh, She's like, Dad, I, you know, can I sleep with you? And I was like, Yeah, no problem. Like, sleep, sleep in bed. And she was like, You know, uh, everything was fine. And then you kind of like stop breathing. Mm. And I think what happens in certain positions. So I, I got to go back. Just as we're talking about this, I'm thinking like, Fuck, I got to yeah, call you, Dr. Greg. You've got to get that <coughs> that oral appliance back. Like that's yeah. I, and that's so much better than the CPAP. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's night yeah. and day, but it's if it works. I mean, it, yeah, it, it did yeah. for me. Um, but it was one of those things where I got hit across the face with that bottle. And like my jaw has never been right. Like I'll still wake up in the in the middle of the night or like first thing in the morning, and I'll open my jaw and it'll crack. Mm-hmm. And it's been like this for what I was eighteen years old, so I'm thirty years. Right. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, so shit like that happens. And I think like you know all this stuff is great, but sometimes you have a physical, you know, something's fucked up, and maybe you got to go see somebody either get it fixed or well, and, and just um, <clears throat> you know, if if you're not a really active athletic guy for your entire life, right? Even if you're, say, a Division One athlete and then you didn't do anything and started working in a cubicle and never, and I got yourself all out of shape. Um, yeah, the the mouth breathing, like I said, that the, when the jaw actually slides back, it actually, or when the tongue slides back into the pharynx and so you have to breathe through your mouth because you're literally forcing that airway open. Um, 
that actually changes the shape of your teeth and your jaw. So everything starts to crowd in and you, and you can see this in people as they get older, one of the things that happens is their jaw becomes more prominent because that's sort of rotating that way. Your teeth start actually going in this way. And then now it's almost impossible to keep your airway open because sure. your tongue's going to be so far back into your pharynx. So something like that not only will improve, will improve your sleep right now, but it'll maintain that improvement of your life, right? Because it'll, yeah, no, re- it'll I'm, I'm realign, really call as soon as I'm it'll realign things and <laughs> keep you from having, you know, that jaw deficit. Doc, we had a, um, what was the deep nutrition doc? Um, uh, Shannon? No. Yeah. It was, um, <clears throat> I can't remember her name. Kate. Kate Shanahan. Yeah. So we had Kate Shanahan who wrote this amazing book called deep nutrition. Mm. And then there, she talks a little bit about the Western price stuff, but she shows different pictures of faces mm. and talks about like a Westernized diet versus an ancestral diet and the difference in terms of like nose face and kind of jaw width. Right. And while sleeping disorders are related to this like narrowing, narrow jaw, narrow face. Right. Right. And like basically going back and being like, and they're, know, and they're rated less attractive because yeah. they're less healthy and like yeah. our eyes pick up on that. And like evolutionarily we can look at it and go, Oh, that's not a healthy looking person. But what's wild yeah. is, uh, I don't think it happens in one generation. Oh no! So so that that's kind of another thing in, in the book, and when they show these pictures, they'll show like this. I think it happens over generations. Mm-hmm. I don't think like you could take somebody who was like narrow face this and then feed the kid like bone broth and knead and well, like this. And no, that. you can like uh, under malnourishment conditions in childhood, you definitely you can definitely change the structure of their face. Uh, no matter how, like you you and they've establishes with twin studies, right? So there's twin studies are the best thing, right? You're almost genetically identical, right? So you have one that gets adopted by a wealthier family and one that was the one that they showed. They showed the one kid who was raised like westernized, like the one twin and the other one wasn't and the faces were different. But uh, like, could that be a contributing factor for poor sleep? I mean, absolutely the airway in this. So like there's some estimates that 50% of obstructive sleep apnea is because of this, what we're talking about right now. Wow. And, but you know, let's not use an evolutionary model for food. Right. Like I listen to these fucking idiots and I'm just like, there, there, there is no other model. And like, you know, like calories in calories out, all these things equated. But at the end of the day, uh, still the smartest dude in the room is always going to be Dr. Michael Rose. Like, I don't give a shit. Like what no, your Instagram is. You, you don't know who that is. Mm-hmm. Rob had him on the podcast. He's an evolutionary biologist. Okay. Um, and when I talked to well, Rob, Brett Weinstein on the dark horse is also an evolutionary. Yeah. And so brilliant. So Jesus Christ, I guess when uh, Michael Rose was on Rob's podcast, Rob called me and he's like, um, evolutionary biology, they break into two parts, pre and post Michael Rose. <laughs> he's pretty much in, and for Rob, uh, I've only heard Rob ever use this term. He's the goat. No, uh, <laughs> Rob, I've, I've only heard Rob say this. We were at the ancestral health symposium 2011 and, uh, I think, uh, Chris Masterjohn was there. Yeah. Um, Matt Lalonde, yeah. Rob, and there's some other people. And as we were sitting in there and I think Rob made reference, he's like, um, there were a lot of smart dudes in that room. Yeah. Uh, Michael Rose, if he's in that room would have been the smartest dude in that room and everybody there would generally accept him as the smartest dude. Right. And Rob even said, he's like, we had him on the podcast and I was just, I mean, so he's got some amazing stuff, but in it, he goes through this idea that like, you know, you have to, at some point you have to return back to your ancestral diet. Cause that's, you know, genetically how we're designed. But I mean, even that guy, I mean, it's pretty much well, I mean, what, what's the argument outside of that? I mean, it, it, it's, it's one of the most arrogant things in the world well, to it's, think. It's, it's like, the idea I've that... I've been alive for 45 well, years. We have, 
we have cell phones. We're two million years old. Well, <laughs> well, the idea is that like because we're in technology and we have cell phones and we're moving at this rapid rate that like why are we using you know antiquated ancient models for people that are having cell phones? Like we drive in cars, like we don't do this. But you have to remember genetically and in terms of our genes, like we're still these people. Like we, if we took a uh, you know a time machine back forty thousand years, I guarantee the people were run into if we can find them are right. going to look very similar to us yeah so i mean um our our intellectual capacity hasn't changed like what we're doing to stimulate our intellectual capacity has changed and so that's going to lead to certain advantages and certain deficits but it's clearly leading to health, less healthy people i mean there, I there's mean, no- tara swart like when we talked about clan of the cape bear um, it was still one of my favorite books, but I mean, she got into this entire deal, like it, genetic, I mean, it, within like the makeup of who we are, we're still, you know, those people. And now we just have, we're, now we're just flying monkeys instead of just normal monkeys. Right. And, and you know, this, this body is at least 200,000 years old. So that, you know, if you could find a, uh, you know, if you could, you could have a, Five, uh, 200,000 year old cavemen don't, you know, if you could find your sperm and donate to a woman today, the baby that'd be born would be just like all of us, the same capacities. It'd be no, no different. So how long have we had electricity? 105 years or something like since rural electrification. I mean, and I mean, you, you can look at, you know, processed foods, grains, you know, things like that. And, and so, yeah, that's not ideal, but I mean, we, we managed to feed, you know, 95% of the world, whereas, you know, 40% of the world was, was in starvation most of uh, human history. So they, there's some upside to that, but there's definitely some deficit or some downsides to, well, to what I to all of the changes we've made. And so it I depends on what you want to optimize. Is, is uh, that we're scavengers and omnivores and we can survive on anything. And I'm like, yeah, but like surviving is different than optimal. Yeah, surviving and performing aren't the same thing. I mean, dude, right? we, we already know there's optimal people performance sur- with pe- a high-protein diet. Pe- people... People survived concentration camps. Yeah. They would not voluntarily go back there, I guarantee you. And their performance sucked and would have sucked for, you know, um, and probably took years and years and years to return if it ever returned fully. Right. Um, so, you know, survival and survival and performing and having like a, you know, an, an enjoyable, uh, meaningful life or obviously not even close oh. to being the same thing. I think what's hurt the ancestral model or even the evolutionary model is the fucking bullshit liver king stuff. You know, now anybody who kind of subscribes to that, which we have for many years, like I'm not arrogant enough to know that like, you know, what we know today is, is better than what it has ever been. But like, I think that the, you know, the liver fucking dipshit, you know, all of a sudden with the spears and all that, it just, it's like when, uh, you know, the paleo thing started yeah, and all a, of a sudden, a mark, like, well, no, but I mean, play, uh, yeah. like Rob was great. I mean, um, you know, with, uh, uh, you know, obviously Lauren Cordain and Michael Eads and, um, uh, Art Devaney, evolutionary yeah. biology. It's yeah. fucking great. And that original, I about Art Devaney, yeah. dude, yeah. Superman's granddad. Yeah. Uh, yeah. but like that evolutionary biology piece that he wrote or evolutionary fitness, like was so impactful for me. Yeah. And, that information, especially with the original kind of like ancestral paleo stuff, was so good. And then all of a sudden, you have paleo FX where you got dudes walking around in loincloths fucking doing it, and it just became ridiculous. Yeah. And it became like, you know, hey, like this has got 4,000 calories in it, but it's paleo because it doesn't. Right, right. Well, it's it's, it's a group polarization, right? So you get in a group that all agrees 
Well, if y'all agree on everything, then nobody's significant. So, like, I have to go a little outside. I have to get a little on the fringe if I want to be significant. I have to say something that's going to make other people question and bring attention to me. And then everybody has to do that, <laughs> right? And so over time, it just becomes more and more. Well, it, just I mean, like it's just like Democrats and Republicans right yeah. now. It's like we're just growing further and further and further apart. Like the longer time well, goes on, their perception of us growing, uh, they're still the same people to me. They're just doing better at playing it off. But uh, what, what I'm trying yeah. to get at <laughs> is in terms of sleep and more importantly, like fixing sleep or making people better, like the evolutionary model is really the only model we have to work with. Right. And and I don't even know why you would why you would consider not doing that. I mean, whether whether or not you, whether or not you think that humans are the best, the most important species on the planet or whatever, we're the best we could possibly be. We've been through millions of years of evolution to get here like our ancestors are the one who gave us our brains and our bodies and they did it through these things. And we know what those things are because we know what was available. It, it, you can't, you know, like, I can't say that cavemen ate ice cream. There wasn't any ice cream, right? So is ice cream good for you? Probably not. Well, they would have eaten ice cream if <laughs> they, they would have. Yeah, they would have. Because it's fucking and, and, delicious. And I, I, had, I had a friend, uh, a psychologist friend in the, in the Navy, uh, who's our foresight for the SEAL teams. And, and he would go buy, you know, candy bars and stuff and he'd come in my office and be eating them and he'd go this is paleo cavemen would have eaten this i'm like yes they would. They definitely would have yeah. they didn't have the opportunity to sure <laughs> thank goodness <laughs> well fuck it's um it yeah well i mean it feels like uh at least with sleep and like the, this is what's always been such an interesting piece and i think why i've always been so fascinated by your work is it's something that every person on the planet does hmm. and roughly a third of your life is spent in this state. Mm -hmm. And yet it's probably like the ocean. We don't know enough about and most, it. Most people, like what I do at my lectures all the time, I, you, I've probably done this with your audience a few times. Um, you start off with like, who can define sleep? Usually nobody in the audience can define sleep. I'm like, don't you think it's weird that you do this a third of your life? You do it every night and you don't, you can't define it. Like Everybody would have a definition for eating. Everybody would have a definition for sex. Everybody would have a definition for exercise, whatever, right? But most people are like, uh, I don't know, restful. And they throw these words out. Yeah. Well, Doc, I need another definition from you. Okay. This episode is part of our Move the Dirt series. So I have a question for you. How would you define or what does it mean to you, Move the Dirt? Well, I, to me, that's, you know, consistent effort, do something every day, no matter, no matter what your limitations are. Because we're, we're never the same person, right? Like, I don't wake up. I won't wake up tomorrow exactly how I woke up today. I don't always have the same energy. I don't always have the same injuries. What well, can't, the analogy goes, no man walks in the same river twice. Yeah, exactly. You, you can't step in the same river twice because it You'll doesn't You'll be a exist. different man and the water will be different. Right. Yeah. And so... Um, you know, move the dirt. From, like it's a great metaphor. I I love it. Um, you know, some days you have a spoon and some days you have a shovel. Some days you can do a lot and some days your best sucks. But it's still better to do that. You know, and uh, you know, Tate Fletcher is one of the best at this. I I think of like you know, uh, no matter what's going on with that dude, like he'll go walk around the block. Like if that's all he can do, right? like yeah. he just had surgery, he's injured, like he he's limping, he's bleeding, like. I'm gonna walk around the block. Like I'm gonna do something today, right? And so he's he's moving it with a baby spoon. Yeah. And then some days, like you've been training, everything's on, and like let's get it, man. And like you know, give me the biggest shovel you can 
you can hand me and, and well, they, uh, you know, Tate gave an incredible talk at Summerstrom. And what was interesting is he got up there and I don't think he knew what he was going to talk about. And he was kind of struggling a little bit and then he kind of caught his stride. And the talk ended up being like, you know, my goal in life is to be useful. Mm-hmm. And the fact that, and even he's made mention this before, if I wake up and I can physically move, I have to because it's how I honor people. Right. And so as you're talking about it, like, you know, I'm going to move the dirt because I can't move dirt. Yeah. And it's just, you know, the degree at which it's done is going to depend on a few other factors. It's, it's a slap in the face to everybody who sacrificed so much to get us here. Everybody who built the world, yeah. everybody, all of our ancestors, you know, I mean, you have thousands and thousands and thousands of ancestors to just go back a few generations, you know. Uh, I mean, it, and and it's a slap in the face for everybody who, like, look what, <laughs> it's a slap in the face of your parents. Like, what have you sacrificed for your kids? Yeah. So. <clears throat> what are you digging for in 2023? Um, I'm always always digging for everything the same year the same thing every year um it uh my my goal in life is just to have the most meaningful life that i can and to have the courage to move towards what i believe will bring me that meaningful life you know so that that can change slightly but you know at my age you know i'm done with accomplishments and accolades and all that it's all really about relationships to me now um but you know, when I was younger, it was about performance or achieving things, whatever. But um, I, I think the easiest thing to do, the most detrimental thing that's very easy for us to do um, is, to, is to not do what we know we need to do. Because <laughs> we all know what we need to do. Right? Sure. And that's just integrity and it's courage. It's really courage because it's like, I don't really want to do it because it's going to be painful or I don't really know how to do it so maybe i'm going to put it off or i'm not quite comfortable with that phone call i'll make it tomorrow whatever i mean it's it's just simple things and and i think the thing that we uh wuss out on the most is the conversation if you need to have you know it, it's really easy to put that conversation off but you never know when you, like i could die before i finish the sentence I don't want anything left unsaid. You know, everybody that I care about, everybody who's meaningful in my life, I want them to know why I care about them and how much I care about them. And so that way, if I die, I'm like, whatever. Like, <laughs> Did you ever see the movie Suicide Squad? <coughs> so no. Which one? Uh, whichever one had Will Smith in it, where he's like dead shot. And the first one. He, he like gives him a gun and the guy puts it in his face and he's like, if this man shoots me, go delete my browser history. <laughs> And uh, I always thought that was just a funny thing. He's just like more nervous that like after he dies, they're going to realize what a fucking degenerate he is. Uh, but I, I like, I, I thought that was fucking you know, hysterical. Jim Jeffries, that stand-up comedian who's from Australia. Yeah. <laughs> he does this bit about being in Amsterdam and buying these porn magazines and sex toys and videos. And he's in his hotel room. He's like, I'm going to have myself a proper wank. And he said, and then it goes through my head. If you die, this is how they'll tell your mom you found you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, what's the legacy? I mean, um, you know, I know you got three kids. Uh, mm-hmm. You've been a doctor, you've been a SEAL. Now you've got an entrepreneur sleep. I mean, what's the, you know, what's your legacy? And more importantly, how do you want to be remembered? I don't have any uh, delusions that I will be remembered. I, I don't think I'm inconsequential, but I'm insignificant in history. I, like um, the people that I care about will remember me and until... If I have good relationships with them, then they'll have good memories of me and they'll speak well of me until they die. And then that'll probably be the end of me. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm fine with that. I don't care. Yeah. yeah. 
cool. Well, Doc, dude, thanks so much for coming on, but also being one of my favorite people in the world, one of my good friends. So, Doc. Uh, Feelings mutual, brother. Yeah. No, Doc shows up and trains with us. Some days he shows, some days he doesn't. <laughs> but you know what? I'm always stoked when he shows up and when I see him. Like, I walked up there today and I was like, oh, shit, he's here. Hmm. You know? Well, I have to keep the excitement alive, you know, just your cameos here and there. If I come every day and just, you know, kind of just routine, you expect it. I know, but I'm also <laughs> glad that I'm your lifeline on stuff. You're, you're like, Doc, Doc, call it. He'd be like, hey, what are you doing? I'm like, why? What's going on? He's like, I have a vulture in my house. Can you go kill it? I'm like, yeah, give me 10 minutes. I'll go get a fucking bat. You know, like yeah. you got to have people that'll be like, uh, you know, the, the age old where he walks in. He's like, I don't need you to ask any questions. We got to go hurt some people. <laughs> Who's car we taking? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Jeremy Renner. Yeah. Parsi's mm-hmm. my guy. All right. All right. Well, that does it for Power Athlete Radio. Doc, if they head to docparsley.com, that's the website. Yeah, let's do a, let's yeah. just do a lander for you guys. So we'll, sure. uh, we'll do docparsley.com forward slash Power Athlete. Power Athlete. Yeah, we'll do that. We'll do Sweet. a place for it. Yeah, check it out. The Sleep Remedy. We and use. We'll put that PDF awesome. on there yeah. so people can grab that. Um, I'm not saying it for any other reason other than the fact that I have taken the sleep remedy for years and I love it and anybody I've given it to and I gift it to people constantly I'll be like hey just take this let me know what you think don't give them any like build up just tell me what you think yeah everybody like especially the fighter guys are like this thing's dangerous like I need to make sure that I'm like in bed when I take this or shit's gonna go south yeah I, I uh, you know for that for that uh, you know expedition we're going on with the skydiving thing I uh, it's that group of guys um Every time we had to train, I just brought it like a box of it and said, take, you know, take as much as you want. And then, you know, it's like crack in the eighties. <laughs> These guys are like, Hey man, you get any more of that? <laughs> get any more of the sleep. And I, like, I, I don't know. I've become so accustomed to it. I don't really think about that. Like, I'm just like, yeah, I, I know it's effective, but I, I don't know. I, I just kind of lose the, I've lost the wow factor of it because it's so routine to me. And every uh, every powder. time those guys are like, oh my god, the powder like, is better than the pills for me personally. Yeah, it, it's well, it's stronger. Yeah, that's why. Um, you can only put so much in a capsule, and you can only get people to take so many capsules. You know, yeah. so um, so it it it's probably like only eighty five or ninety percent as effective, I think. But some people react bad to flavoring, or there's a little xylitol in there, and they don't want that or whatever. So, but the, definitely, it's liquid; it absorbs faster. Sure. Like I, like I, it's it's part of my nighttime ritual because I like yeah. boil water to put it in. Like oh. the, the hotter the water, the sweeter it is. The colder the water, the more sour it is because apple cinnamon is yeah. apple's a little sour part. I do two packets and creatine, and then also I take a little natural calm and put that in there too. Yeah, and that's yeah. my little nighttime. Yeah, if deal. you can tolerate more magnesium, yeah, I I really that's something I had to dial back because there's a pretty there's a pretty big disparity. Yeah between how much magnesium people can take. And yeah, I, I don't want to give everyone the yeah. Mexican two-step, you know? No, I, I remember you told me, like, just put a little of that in there. I mean, yeah. And I don't have any issues with it. So I take that and I'm good to go. Yeah. That's amazing. Cool. All right. All right. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Power Athlete Radio. Bye. Bye. This episode of Power Athlete Radio is powered by Train Heroic, the most immersive strength training app experience on the market. We've built our online training business by partnering with Train Heroic and helping us deliver all of our world-class training programs like Jack Street, Field Strong, and Grindstone. To learn which Power Athlete training program best suits your goals, head to powerathletehq.com training. And if you're a coach looking to build a business with the best tech and training, go to trainheroic.co forward slash powerathletehq.